Levi and Julia and Savannah and, um, okay, a few, okay. So I wasn't sure if we were going to combine the classes or not. Hey guys, come this way. <clears throat> yeah, more coming, Tina. There you go. Tonight, our study in Genesis brings us to Genesis 18, and we're going to look at the first 15 verses. So let us hear the reading of the Word of God. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them. And bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three says of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. This is the word of the Lord. So we come to this moment uh, that's probably very familiar to us, that if we've studied the Bible a good bit, we've heard this account uh, with Sarah and Abraham, but we have to pay attention of when this takes place. When this takes place, it comes after the moment uh, when God had given the sign of the covenant, given the covenant sign to Abraham when Abraham was asking, show me that what you say is true, that what you say is actually going to happen, and God gave him a very clear sign uh, in the circumcision. And so now when we look at this, we have the, um, the advantage of hindsight. We can see who it is that actually came to Abraham. 
But to be uh, true to the text, we have to look at what Abraham was seeing. Abraham was not doing something that was not ordinary for him. It was natural in that season of his life and in the season and where he lived that he would be uh, waiting for an arrival in such a way. That whenever the, what would take place is that travelers in that time, they would set out in the morning and they would travel all day. And then as they would come uh, to the place of growing weary, they would look for refuge. They would look for a place to stay. They would look for hospitality that would take place. And so Abraham's response, even though it seems pretty extraordinary to us, probably wasn't extraordinary on its face. Abraham was acting as the people do in that land, and they still do. If you ever travel into the Middle East or into the Near Eastern world, their hospitality is above all. The way that they welcome guests into their home and uh, the, the, the uh, customs that they use to show honor to their guests are very similar to what we see here in the Word of God. But we want to look here a little bit deeper at what this arrival is. This arrival wasn't going to add anything to the covenant promise. There's no appendage, if you will, to the covenant of promise that had already been given to Abraham in chapter 17 and chapter 15. The promise that God gave was sure. But what we see here is that there needed to be a confirmation of that promise. There seems like there's always, constantly, that the people of God, when they hear the promises or the good news from God, they want and they need confirmation. That's just how we are. But especially in this account, Sarah needed confirmation. Sarah needed to hear the promise of God and be confronted with the promise of God. And so we pay attention to the setting here of what takes place um, is that we hear the narration that when the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, you hear the narration that's taking place. It's not Abraham telling you that the Lord appeared. It's the, the writer of Genesis. Moses is telling you it was the Lord that was appearing uh, to Abraham. And we got another clue to that is because in chapter 17, any time that God came to Abraham, it's using the Hebrew word Yahweh, making it very clear that this is God, the God of Abraham. And so the time when the Lord is being used here and, me, and Abraham seeing him come off in the arrival, it's Adonai. It's showing you the title, a title of honor that someone would give. We've heard that certainly in medieval times where people would say, my Lord. And so Abraham is showing this person with respect can tell that this person that is coming is of great respect and honor because he's not just simply standing up at the entrance of his tent, but he actually runs out to meet him and bows down. And that was a customary practice in that time and in that region when someone of renown or someone that seemed to be much more than just a regular traveler was passing by, that the customary to show honor would be run out and meet them. Another way that we can see that Abraham was not fully aware that this is God that is coming, that this is the Lord Jesus that is coming, we see over in chapter 17 when God speaks, what does Abraham do? He falls down before God. 
where he doesn't utter a word before God because God, he knows that this is God who's speaking, who's coming to me, who's appearing to me. But these travelers, Abraham speaks to them, speaks to these visitors and says basically that you would uh, allow me to show you hospitality, that you would allow me to bring water, to wash your feet, to handle you in a very ordinary way. And if Abraham was really perceiving that this was God, that this was the Lord Jesus, the, the, uh, a manifestation of the Lord Jesus in the Old Testament, then I think he probably would have acted in a different way. But that doesn't take anything away from the text for us to understand the reverence and to understand the significance of what's taking place is that the Lord is coming to Abraham to confirm his promise. And Abraham is sitting in the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. Now we can see there's great contrast that will be later on in this chapter to when it is that the Lord will visit Sodom and Gomorrah and when he will come in judgment. But here Abraham is sitting at the tent in the heat of the day. It's very hot. So what they would do is they would sit down, they would open up the tent and let the cool air come in and there they would wait. They would wait to see if passerbys needed help, needed care. And what we see from that is a trait that we in Christianity, we have. We're constantly waiting, or we should be waiting. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4, it says, From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. And so God's people are constantly in a posture of waiting. Sometimes we don't know exactly fully how that, uh, what that, what we're waiting on is going to come. And that's what was taking place with Abraham. Abraham is waiting in a customary and an ordinary way, and that's how God's providence comes. God's providence comes in an ordinary, customary way, it seems. And it's not always supernatural or extraordinary that we would pay attention to it if we weren't looking for it. If we weren't understanding that the way that God provides for his purpose to come about, he uses the ordinary means and the ways of life usually to bring about the things that he desires to have happen in this world. And so when these strangers come and they meet Abraham, and Abraham comes out and meets them, it's obvious that there's one that's the leader and there's one that's behind them. We have the, the advantage of knowing that this is a manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ and two angels that are being shown. So much that the New Testament speaks about how it is that we should entertain angels. And we'll look at that in our second point a little bit more. And so what waiting is for a Christian, and it was for Abraham, it was a posture that was natural, or it should be natural. And so for us in Christians, as Christians, we should have a posture of waiting on God. We're waiting until the end day. We are waiting in a way that a Christian waits for God's providence to bring about the end of his purposes, the fulfillment of his purposes. 
And so it definitely behooves us for us to think about how are there, what are some of the ways that we wait on God in hope of his promise with expectation. Abraham wasn't just putting his head down. He had a very much a clear expectation that there could be travelers passing by and his tent was open and his heart and his willingness was open to receive those that were weary by travel, to entertain them, to bring them in. So what are some of the ways that we are as Christians that we're called to wait on God in hope of his promise? Throw some answers out there. How we wait as Christians. Answer prayer. So we wait in prayer. That's one of the biggies for sure, right? And so when we wait in prayer, we're not simply just waiting, boy, I hope this happens. Right? We're actually looking to the God who makes it happen. We are relying upon the God that we believe that he's like no other God because he actually acts for those who wait on him. That's just a beautiful, beautiful uh, testimony that's given to us in Isaiah. What else do we do as we wait as Christians? How else do we wait? Is it only in prayer that a Christian is waiting for the promises of God. Other ways that we do is we wait with hope. And this hope is not one that makes us shame, okay? It's a hope that has substance behind it because it has an expectation that God is going to act. And so we have to be very careful that we're not living fatalistically, that we believe, well, it may come to pass, God may bring it to pass, but yet we have an assurance, an expectation in us that God will act. How about we wait and trust? Are we leaning upon the very promise in which God has given us? Are we leaning upon that, waiting for God to bring it about and trusting that if God said it's true, then he is going to do what he said he was going to do. We don't have to doubt it. Now, we may have to wait a while, and we're going to see that with Sarah and Abraham, they received the promise of God, but it didn't come in their timing. It came in God's providential timing. And so trusting is not simply getting our way immediately. That means for us to depend and put our weight and lean upon God. Lean upon God's promises that they are true. Now, Abraham was not only waiting, but he was waiting while watching, right? He was in the posture at the opening of his tent in the ordinary custom of his day, in the ordinary custom of his life. He was waiting, but he was also watching. Okay, Many times Jesus said that if you're not watching, I'm going to come like a thief in the night. Right? We've seen that in Revelation. Uh, the, the virgins that missed, missed uh, the bride, the, the bridegroom that was coming by, and they didn't have their lamps ready because they weren't watching. And so the people of God, the Christian uh, trait of a Christian is that we're waiting while watching. We're watching for God to act or for God's promises to come. And we don't really get the benefit always of how they're going to come, but we have to know our God. We have to have a relationship with our God while we wait. We also wait with patience. Patience is something I'm not very good at. 
okay? I like things to happen immediately once I have made a decision. I want them to come about, but in God's time and his providence, I have to learn to submit to his will. And the way that I learn to submit to his will is I wait with patience. You could almost kind of feel that in the setting of Abraham, that God had given Abraham the promise that I'm going to make of you uh, a, a great nation. And God keeps telling Abraham that and is even giving him the sign. But yet here's Abraham kind of wore out in the heat of the day, looking for the promise Seeking the promise, you can almost see the picture that's being created by the narrator here, is that the Lord is going to appear to Abraham while Abraham is in a posture and dealing with the heat, the, almost the torment or the hardship of the day, and he's waiting with expectation. That's how the Christian lives their life if we're truly submitting to the will of God. We are put through the fire. We're put through the furnace. We are in the heat of the day where there are constant trials and hardships and tribulations that are constantly going forward in our life. And we're waiting, we're waiting for God to deliver us by his promise. We also wait with willingness. We can't but see that Abraham was ready to jump up immediately and move to the weary travelers. He was willing to get up and uh, put himself out for others. And so there was a willingness that he would respond when God came or when God, whenever the travelers would come. And we as Christians, we have to have that willingness. Are we ready? Are we ready when the moment of God's providential time comes where he moves and he acts and we're going to get up? We're going to get up and go out to him. And last, we are to wait in peace. We're not to fear or be tormented, or to be troubled by having to wait. That's the biggest thing. Sometimes we grow bitter. We grow angry that we're having to wait. And all of that is part of God's purpose and plan to bring us to him to do the very thing that the first song said, teach me thy way. Teach me thy way in failure or success. Such a fitting fitting song that speaks about the Christian life. It says, have a holistic view. Don't just have a relationship with God when things are going good. Have a relationship with God when things are going bad. Have a relationship with God when things are just are pretty stagnant and things are not happening and there's not any excitement in your life. But find that you've got to have a holistic expectation and waiting in God's purpose and his promise. Now here the text, we just see in the ordinary customary way, Abraham was waiting to serve these travelers that would come by. And God in his providence uses it, uses it to bring about his purpose to confirm their faith once again in the promises of God. And we're going to see that right at the end. Because right at the end, it's going to say that the Lord is going to speak. The Lord said to Abraham, once you see that change there, that what is being said there, Yahweh is speaking, okay? And when the angel is saying, is anything too hard for the Lord? When Jesus is speaking there, there again, we see Yahweh, okay? There, there's an interchange that's taking place in the language that we don't see in the English translation 
But in the Hebrew, it's making it very clear that, oh, now it's being made known. Later on, what takes place few quickly after the few verses after uh, verse 15 is when um, the Lord says, should we let Abraham know what's going to happen in Sodom and Gomorrah? And then when the two angels leave and they go down to Sodom and Gomorrah, the Lord stays behind. You can see a whole change of posture in Abraham. Abraham is submitting to this hard understanding that God is coming in judgment. And then he begins to almost barter with God. You know, per venture, there's this many people there. Would you, would you save it? He's not speaking to just a traveler passing by. He's very much aware that the Lord is speaking to him at that moment. And so there we see the arrival of the three strangers gives us the setting that things are ordinary and customary, but God works out his providence in ordinary ways. And that's something that we need to understand, and that's something that we need to bow down to. And it causes us to wait in expectation that what God says he's going to do, that which God promises, he will bring about. The second point is we can't but see that the writer wants us to understand Abraham's hospitality. His hospitality goes beyond probably anything that we understand. Can you imagine sitting at the opening of your door, opening the door to your house, sitting outside, waiting for passersby, and then you're going to basically get the wife working to put bread together, bake these cakes together real quick, to feed them, to wash the feet, to give them water to wash their feet, and then go kill the fatted calf. Kill the fatted calf. When the fatted calf is killed and given and cooked and given to these passerbys, then you know Abraham is showing great honor to these travelers, to these travelers. And so we are, as Christians, we're to understand how we should receive strangers. And the Bible says that many times over. It brings out a, a recognition that God's people are those who have entertained strangers, have entertained, when they've entertained strangers, they've entertained angels. And many would say that that passage in Hebrews pointing back to this Abraham event, and I would agree with them. And so what we see in Abraham is there's a heart's willingness. There's a heart willingness to meet weary travelers. And so we as Christians, we have to ask, do we really have that same heart willingness to look at other people's needs and meet them where they are, to run out to them, to show them great reverence, to give them great, uh, show great humility before them, humbleness. When someone bows down before another, they're saying that I'm at your service. I'm at your service. They're making themselves lower than the other person, raising them up in esteem and saying, I care. I care. I see your need, and I'm going to address your need. And so we see that Abraham, his hospitality, shows a posture of a heart willingness to meet the weary travelers where they are and a gracious, gracious humbleness and showing kindness and care for others. That's what's so necessary in Christianity. Part of our message this morning was about sincerity. You can speak all day long to people about the word of God. 
But if your life is not demonstrating what you're saying the Word of God teaches, then the unbeliever is going to think you're insincere. And it's your sincerity <clears throat> to the message of God's love that you respond to that is going to win over the unbeliever. When the unbeliever sees that you have a sincerity, you really care about someone, and you just aren't giving lip service, but that you actually go out of your way to, cover, to care for them. I know many times when I've, I've spoken some to atheists in my life, and they said, you know, there are many reasons why I haven't paid attention to those who were trying to teach me the Bible. It's because they weren't, in, they weren't sincere about what they believed. They wanted me to believe it, but yet everything about their life didn't speak that of uh, speak of what the Word of God said a Christian was that I was being told that a Christian was. And so a Christian isn't simply to look at someone's need and turn a blind eye to it. Now we can address that in many different ways, but in the ordinary and the customary way of Abraham's life, he didn't qualify who it was that needed his help or needed his care. He ran out to meet them in the customary way that was provided to him or that was provided uh, during, that, during that time and during that age. And so Abraham meets, meets their need by rising up in the heat of the day and going out, bowing down before them and giving them the way to clean their feet to be nurtured, to give nutrients, to give rest. And that's what a Christian does. When they come to an unbeliever, they come to another believer. Is that we want to show you the way that your feet can be clean. This walk that you've been going through in this world, and you've been coming, walking through the filth and the, the dirtiness of this world, well, by believing in Jesus... By receiving Jesus, by depending upon Jesus' cleanness, you, your walk, your conversation can be clean. Are you hungry? Then give them food if you can. If you're truly able, then give food. But spiritually, a Christian is always has to be willing to show how someone can be fed. By giving them the truth of the gospel. By giving them the truth of the grace that nurtures them in the life of Christ. There is no other bread that can be given that's going to take away the hunger than the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there we point them to the word of God. We point them to the preciousness of God's grace. But we also do the acts that are needed. We look in Matthew chapter 25. Jesus says that very thing. He says to his followers, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And if we heard that, if the Lord is saying that to us, we probably have the same response here that the righteous answer. The righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When, and when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? 
And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Clearly there's a uniqueness there in the relationship of Christian brothership, of the brethren, of those that are of like faith. And we're to do good to all men, but especially to the household of faith. We're to look for the opportunity to do good. Just as Abraham was sitting at the opening, the door of his tent, and he was looking for opportunity to do good. He was waiting for that opportunity. And so a Christian who is really living the life of Christianity, that truly has come to see uh, how God uh, addressed their need, addressed their time, their hour, when they needed rest, when they needed cleansing, when they needed food, when they needed comfort. If that truly has gone deep into our heart, then we can't but be moved when we see it in others. We see it in others. And so Hebrews 13.2 tells us the very thing about this Genesis passage where the encouragement to the Christians are in order to continue in charity is to do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. <clears throat> and see there that the writer of Hebrews picks up of what Abraham might have understood or suspected, that there are these angels that are coming to him. And he then entertains. He's already entertaining hospitality to strangers. But in the end, what is made clear by the word there is that he entertained angels. Because they're going to go down into Sodom and Gomorrah. And they're going to bring the judgment of God upon Sodom and Gomorrah. You can go there and see that the two angels will arrive in Sodom and Gomorrah. But here the encouragement is is that you don't know. You must have within you a desire to address the need of strangers. And that's one thing, if you ever go to the Middle East or you go over in the Near East, they will take you who seem as a stranger and they will show you hospitality because they want to make it known that you're my friend. That you're my friend. You're not a stranger to me. You're my friend. So much that you'll even be called that. My friend. My friend Tim, come on in. And so there you can't fully just believe that their hospitality is sincere, but yet you can see the exercise. You can see the act. But here with Abraham, his hospitality was sincere. He was running out to meet these travelers and getting the food ready to, to take care of their need. And so we see that the sincerity of our life is to address the needs of others in order that they may know the love of God. I think it's a biblical principle. Now, this is not works righteousness because we're doing these things. God is going to give us righteousness. It comes along with how much gratitude that we feel for what God has done to us when we were needy, when we were naked, when we were hungry. When we were thirsty, Jesus says, when you did it to these, you did it to me. When you addressed 
the needs of those that are before you and you didn't turn a blind eye to them. It was as if you were doing it for me because the Christian, the motivation is that we do all things unto the glory of God, unto the glory of the Lord. And so when we see the needs of others, we're not to turn a blind eye and not be sympathetic to them. But we are to address them in whatever customary, ordinary way that we can do so. And our last point that I believe what we see here is that the arrival of these strangers first was really very essential to Sarah. When you look at that, that verse that we read in Hebrews, that it says, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. She needed the confirmation of faith. She needed her faith to be confirmed. She was obviously looking at who she is and saying, can God do what he says he's going, that these people say he's going to do? Sarah didn't see the strangers. She heard what was said. And that's another thing. If you were over in the Middle East, you, we could understand that. That when you sit down at the table with the family, the woman's not outside. She's in the back. She's sitting there at the doorway waiting to provide if it needs to happen. And so what was taking place is that Sarah's behind another curtain. And she's hearing this conversation that's going on between Abraham and these strangers. And here it had to start dawning on Abraham, if it hadn't already, that here's another appearance of the Lord to confirm his promise. To not add to the promise, but to confirm the promise. Because Sarah needed faith to do what, according to Hebrews? To conceive. To bring about every time that God spoke the promise to Abraham that, she, that he would have a son and that it would be born to Abraham, it would be born of Sarah. Sarah. God wasn't going to change the way. Even Abraham and Sarah tried to change the way that God was going to bring about his promise by giving the handmaids to bring other children because they believed that God was going to do what he said he was going to do, but God just needed a little help. And they were tired of waiting. And that what didn't please God because the way that God was going to demonstrate his power and declare his glory is he was going to enter into the ordinary where we would question and say, it can't happen, and God will say, watch me. Watch me. Because anything that I do, it's not too hard for me. And so Sarah needed her faith to be strengthened so it would be power to conceive, that she would be able to be the instrument by which God would bring about his promise in bringing Isaac into the life of Abraham and Sarah. And so by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promise. Well, right here, it doesn't seem that Sarah considered him faithful at that moment yet. But it was necessary. It was necessary that God would meet her in her hour of need. Meet her in her hour of need to confirm the promise. 
Some commentators have even asked, did Abraham tell Sarah about the promise that was given to God, that was given to Abraham by God? We could probably think about that, men. Sometimes we hide what we know from our wives because it hasn't yet come just to keep the peace, right? And so maybe that was the case. I don't know. But what simply, what truly happened here or what was happening was Sarah's probably getting bitter if she knew about the promise. But more important, she was getting bitter because she wasn't bearing a son to Abraham. We've already saw the evidence of that throughout Genesis, that Sarah was there uh, becoming bitter so much that Hagar would have a son and I'm not having a son. And so much she takes out her bitterness or anger on Abraham. And so here, Sarah's faith has got to be strengthened. And so there we see that she hears this conversation. There again in God's providence. God's working out his purpose. Even when we're failing uh, to live up to our uh, love and our obedience to him, God is always faithful. And so they said to him, to Abraham, where is Sarah your wife? Notice there's the intent. That had to kind of dawn on Abraham too. Well, how do you know what my wife's name is? Okay. Why, how do you know who uh, my wife is? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. So we see once again the narration that's going on. But what Abraham was heard was not, I'm the Lord speaking to you. But what he heard was, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of a woman of women had ceased to be with Sarah. She was too old to have a baby naturally in her eyes. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? You can almost hear the, the answer of bitterness. Don't get my hopes up. Don't give me the hope once again that I'm truly going to give my Lord, the, my husband, a child. I've been down that road before. It didn't go well. And then you hear, is anything too hard for the Lord? Because Sarah laughs and says, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. So we see the promise is nearing. A expectation of a timeline is now being given to Abraham and Sarah, that their expectation that they can see there's something that this is actually going to happen because the one is telling them, the Lord is telling them this. And so Sarah's doubt, according to Hebrews, must have been rooted in her lack of faith in the power of God. And the ways of how she doubted in God's power was because she was old. We hear that. I'm worn out. I'm ceased to be what a woman can, can actually do at this age. 
She also doubted the goodness of God. She doubted the goodness of God, saying basically, will, will this happen? So shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? When you hear those kind of questions, it's getting deep-rooted into things about a person looking more at themselves than they are at looking at who God is. Underlying those questions, we could even say that she was asking, am I even worthy? Is there a worthiness in me? I know personally when a woman struggles to have a child, that thought comes into their mind. Is, Lord, have I done something to displease you? Am I not worthy to have a child? And then you have to come to the place where you submit and you bow down to God's will. Nevertheless, thy will be done. But in that first examination or that first meeting with that, those hard providences of God, because that's what they are, providences that come that are not comfortable to us in our life, that God brings into our life, that he provides for in our life, and those that are having a hard time conceiving, their womb has been shut. Their womb has been shut, that God must open the womb. And so those are hard providences when they're sitting around seeing ladies all around them having children, and they can't. And there's great pain and great sorrow when that takes place. And then she must have also been looking at Abraham. Is he really able to have a child? We're old. We're in our old age here. And so as we see how God strengthens Sarah's faith, the Lord comes and confronts her bitterness, confronts her doubts, confronts her uh, mockery, if you will, of God's promise. And there simply says to her, is anything too hard for the Lord? Because at the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. And so there the, the Lord's asking, why did Sarah laugh and say? When it is brought to light, that we didn't respond in a way or we uh, didn't believe someone, we're so quick to hide our shame. We're so quick to hide uh, what we really thought and not just give over and say, yes, we thought that, but now I believe. And the Lord's not going to leave us in our denial or in our deception because to receive the promise of God we have to have a clarity of the one who is giving the promise. And so Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. No, but you did laugh. Because there, that the one that was speaking knew that Sarah laughed at hearing the promise of God. That should have awakened Sarah to say, who is this person? Who is this person that's speaking to Abraham that would say that I laughed at hearing the promise of God? 
And so we have to think, why is it that we think there are things in this world that are too hard for God? Jeremiah is going to pick that up, and you're going to see that language or that concept throughout the Word of God is that the downfalling, the doubt of those who are the faithful, who are children of God, that they come many times to believe that there's something too hard for God. And so why are there things that we think are too hard for God? I think the first thing is we fail to see God's power. You can kind of see in Sarah's words what she was saying. Does God really have power to cause me, this old woman that's worn out, to conceive a child? To really bring about his promise? Because if we were looking at the God of promise, we'd be looking at his promise. We wouldn't be looking at our circumstance. And that's where a Christian becomes full of doubt and becomes bitter is when they start to look at their circumstance more than they look at the God of that circumstance. And so the first thing is, we fail to see God's power. I think another way that we have to be very careful as Christians, that we don't doubt that things are, that things are too hard for God, is that we live fatalistically. We believe in God's sovereignty. We believe in God's power to do whatever he purposes. But will it really happen? If it does, it does. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But that's not the mindset or the heart of a Christian that knows God. That you hear when our Lord Jesus is in the garden, he's not fatalistically asking his father for this cup to pass from him. He's submitting to that hard providence that the cup's not going to pass. And that's okay because your will is more perfect than mine. And if that's the case, that's how a child of God lives that's how a child of God should live when things come in their life or they have a hope or they have an expectation that you're not just living fatalistically. Those people outside of the church do that very well. That's how they cope with not getting what they want. That it's just not, it's not within the fates today. But a, but a Christian should not have that kind of empty perspective of life. They should have a rich perspective of life, being willing to submit to the will of God, even when it hurts, when it's not comfortable, when it may not be what we really want. But when we submit to the power and the sovereignty of God and to his will, there is a strange peace that overcomes everything. There's a peace that passes understanding. There's a peace that passes understanding. The third thing that I would say that I would think we have to understand that if we think there are things too hard for God is that we don't really know God. We don't know God like we should know God. We haven't come to an understanding that he who is a God of promise, he speaks yea and nay. He's either going to do it or he's not going to do it. He's not going to make a promise and then pull back and say, just kidding. That's not who our God is. Our God is a perfect God who brings about his will for his good pleasure. 
And the fourth thing I think we have to be confronted with is that we have a wrong understanding of God. We have a wrong understanding of God. We, we have believed that the creation is more powerful than the creator. That the creation is what really defines our life and not the God of all life. Not the God who holds every day of our life in his hand. We have a wrong understanding of God that we think he's just the old man upstairs watching life happen. And that he doesn't intervene and he's not controlling all things by the power of his word, by his providence, by his will. But yet we just can't understand it fully. And Christians, we have to be willing to admit that. We have to admit, God, yes, we laughed at your providence. We laughed at your will and please forgive us. Let me confess my sin and bow down before you that I can enter into the full experience of your promise, not by trying to save face, but coming before your face. The reformers had a, had a, a concept called quorum Deo, that we come before the face of God, that we face God. We're not ashamed to face God, that our life needs to be before God, to be examined before him, that we may experience his countenance of his light and of his grace. And so we need our faith strengthened because there are going to be moments in our lives when we question that is anything too hard for the Lord? And we're going to answer yes when we should be answering no. Let us learn from Abraham and Sarah. Let us hear the word of God that the ways of our heart would be taught to honor him and glorify him.